Hello and welcome to the AP Top 25 College Football Podcast. I'm Ralph Russo, college football writer with the Associated Press. We have hit the bonus week of this seemingly never-ending college football season. There are some key games to be played this week, uh, a lot of makeup dates before championship weekend on December 19th. Also looming is the early signing period in college football. Yes, that's next week. So the calendar is all scrambled. To talk about recruiting and the coaching carousel and the playoff race and some other stuff, I'm bringing on two guests. Barton Simmons and Bud Elliott of 24-7 Sports. They've been on the show separately before, but they do such a good job on their Barton and Bud podcast, I thought it would be fun to talk to them at the same time this week. Thanks for listening to the AP Top 25 College Football Podcast. You can find us on Westwood One Podcast, Apple Podcast, and just about anywhere you like to get your podcast. If you like what you hear, give us a good review and a good rating. It helps college football fans find us, and it helps us find more college football fans. And away we go. Joining me this week on the podcast are a couple of guys who I've known for a while. They do a great job for 24-7 sports. Uh, They got a really good podcast uh, called the Barton and Bud Show. Uh, So this is Barton Simmons and Bud Elliott from 24-7 Sports. We're going to get into some recruiting stuff because... It's hard to even process this because the the sports calendar is so messed up. But the early signing period is next week. I know we still have championship games to be played, but the early signing period is next week. So we're going to get into some recruiting stuff, but also some broader issues. So um, I'm going to try to identify you before you talk and sort of like uh, intro both of you in, um, you know, when I ask questions. So Barton Simmons, thanks for joining me today. You bet. Uh, appreciate you having us. And Bud Elliott, thank you for joining us today. Uh, again, appreciate your work and appreciate your time. Glad to be on, Ralph. I, I guess they give anybody, anybody a podcast. He said, we, we got one. You got one. This is be fun. <laughs> you know, the, the joke that I use with a lot of my sports writer and, you know, content maker friends is um, the only time we talk to each other is when we're doing each other's podcasts. Like That's right. the, it's the only interactions we have anymore. Like we may be friends, but if it's not recorded and used as content, we don't even really want to have a conversation with one another. Um, so let's start with the recruiting side of things and signing day coming up next week. Uh, and I'll start with you, bud. We anticipated a weird, well, we've gotten a weird, you know, lead up to the signing period because there have been no official visits and all the restrictions placed in because of the pandemic have created a very unique situation as far as recruiting. Let's get into what that has meant to the players first. What, what have all the no visits and everything that has gone into limiting recruiting, in some cases, in some states, not even being able to play high school football, what has that done to the players in the class of 2021? It's It's been tough, Ralph. I mean, look, for the most part, everybody is somewhat equally impacted by this because no, nobody's allowed to take visits anywhere. But the information uh, given to these prospects now is is not what it would normally be. You, you can go on our virtual Zoom tour of the campus. You, you, you can meet the coaches 
virtually, and, and a lot of us are conducting our lives right now in, on a virtual basis, right? Like Barton and I have met in person one time since I started 24-7 sports. It's pretty much just nonstop Zoom calls. That's what recruiting is right now. But you don't really get a feel for the place you're going to you're gonna spend your next four years over a Zoom call. You, you don't really get to go out there, see how, how a coach operates in practice. He doesn't get to go see you on your high school campus. He doesn't get to talk to your guidance counselors in, in person and, and you know, see the looks that, that, that you get when you ask them certain questions. It, the information uh, for the players right now is, is really limited. And obviously, with much of the country shut down for travel right now, um, even if you want to go visit a campus unofficially, a lot of prospects have, have not been able to, to do so. And even when you get on campus, you can't meet with the coaches due to NCAA rules. So it's the lack of information uh, has made the choice difficult for a lot of prospects, I believe. For uh, Barton, I wanted to I want to jump off that the idea that listen, I'm sure if I'm a five star, people know about me to a certain degree. Now they might not be getting again quite like like Bud said as much information, but you know I'm getting my offers. I, I have my more than enough things to, you know schools to choose from. I got to imagine there are some prospects here. You know the later bloomers, kids who have missed a a chance to sort of blossom into the three that goes to four, maybe the four that goes to five. I don't even know if you've seen enough players and you've been able to gather enough information to identify maybe some guys who are slipping under the radar, but I'm sure you're hearing about that. You know, how is, how is that going to stunt what we expect from this class? Yeah, I think we've got potential to see this class produce more sleeper, nobody, come-from-nowhere prospects that fall out on the next level than we ever have because it's just been less opportunity, not only for us, but but I think you know more, more importantly for the colleges to just unearth these guys. Late bloomers, there's kind of no such thing. I guess you can put up some good senior film this year, and, and it pops, and a few of those guys have, uh, but it's just a little bit tougher to, to get conviction and validation on them. I'll give you an example. Um, you know, I was talking to a, this was, I don't know, this is a few weeks ago, maybe a month ago. There, a, a coach was, I was talking about kind of filling out his board and looking for another player at a certain position. Right. And, and he, he, had, he told me about this guy he really likes, um, from an in-state program. That's a kind of a, a, you know, big, big time program. And, and he was like, but I don't, he was sort of like, but, but I don't know how big he is. I don't know if we can move on him. I just don't know. And that's typically a guy where in a, in a typical process, they might have like four different measurements on him from four different visits, whether that be spring camp, a couple different games. Uh, they may have a 40 yard dash time on him. And, and this coach is just sort of basically shrugging, throwing up his hands, being like, I, I like his film, but what am I supposed to do here? And I just think that that speaks to, what uh, a lot of the the challenges of this process, and I'll be honest with you, you know, class of 2021 is going to be, you know, it'll it'll be a little bit tricky because of that. But these days, so much of the work is done ahead of time. So much of the, you know, in the last last December, last January, coaches were working on the 2021 class, the you know the 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 juniors of that cycle heading into senior season. So. While 2021 is a challenge, I think it's the the bigger challenge is going to be 2022. If this pandemic continues to extend into the spring, if if official if official visits and and camps and that sort of thing don't take place, if an evaluation period 
doesn't open up in the spring, 2022 is going to be a disaster because you got then basically two full cycles of development that you're just guessing on. And I think that's going to be some real hurdles and challenges and obstacles that are to come for personnel departments. So, Bud, one of the things that we saw throughout this cycle was uh, a ton of commitments at a period where uh, I guess the best way I could say this, we had more commitments than usual at certain periods of time, right? It seemed like in the spring uh, when commitments should normally be X number, they were X plus 150. Um, that also led us to believe that we may have more decommitments down the stretch. So I'll ask you, how is that looking? I mean, we are down the stretch here. Are, are, are you noticing sort of the crazy decommitments that we thought we might get? Ralph, I really thought we were going to have an, an epic season of decommitments uh, if if visits opened up. Because in the spring, when, when the NBA was shutting down and when everybody kind of got word that recruiting was going to be shutting down, you had kind of a, a scrambling of prospects just trying to reserve a spot. It's almost like you're making a dinner dinner reservation. You, you can always change it later. There's nothing binding about that verbal commitment. Uh, and I thought, okay, well, as long as visits open back up, kids are going to you know go out and they're going to see. Wait a second, this, this place I committed to, it, it's it's really not my vibe, right? I, I like this other place. Well, visits have not opened up, and yet we are now seeing the wave of decommitments anyway. Uh, yesterday we had, what do we have? Uh, yesterday we had nine. The day before, I think we had 12. Um, you, you're, you're looking at, at probably going to be double-digit decommitments per day leading up uh, to, the, to the early signing period, uh, which is obviously next week. Uh, but I don't think we're going to get quite the wave uh, that we, I was expecting us to have had we you know, actually had visits open up. Uh, but still, this is going to be wild down the stretch. I, I think you know, kids are like, wait, I committed here. I never really got to visit. Is this really where I want to go? Barton wrote a good piece a couple months ago that I think is really proving true. You know, the schools that have a lot of talent nearby are probably benefiting more than ever this year because you, know, you can pop over and at least see their campus. You can't, you can't visit with the coaches when you're on the campus, but you can at least go, go and see it. Um, it's it's going to be fascinating to track here over the next week. Yeah, and I'll stick with you on this bug because I, there have been some also, um, as you say, you're, you're still can, you can still do an unofficial visit, right? You can still literally, if you want, you can visit a campus and go check things out. Uh, and I know in some cases, I think Oklahoma did this, and I feel like there are other schools who have done this. Oklahoma was the one that jumped out to me, where the com the kids themselves, right, the high school players, the class of 2021, sort of arranged like, hey, we're going to get together and try to, you know, come to campus and check things out and get to know each other a little bit as best as you can with the restrictions uh, laid in there. So I know some of that stuff has been happening, but what do you see now? You said, you know, we're, we're looking at maybe double digit decommitments per day. Who's standing out? Who are the ones that now we think like, okay, this is an interesting one. Um, a, will they decide by next week uh, or B, are we looking at a kid who might, uh, wait until February now. I mean, we, we, we can just go last night. We, we, we had two additional ones. Uh, a kid named Harrison Wallace, who we're extremely high on as a network relative to the rest of the industry. We, we, we have him, you know, inside our, 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 our top 247 and uh, and the rest of the industry is, is pretty low on him. They have him, at, you know, 550th in the country. He's a receiver out of Alabama. Uh, he was committed to Duke. And last night he decommitted early crystal balls rolling in from our Penn State insiders and, and national insiders like, like Steve Wolfong. Um, Malik McLean, a receiver out of IMG, was, was committed to Mike Norvell at Florida State. He decommitted last night. 
looks like Old Miss could be the destination uh, for him. So, uh, I mean, if you're Duke, that's painful. You, you're you're getting this kid almost to the finish line. What one week to go? You you offered him early. You, you scouted him out. You were on him well well before the rest of the industry. You know, loved him and hell, some of the industry is not even caught up yet, right? They still have him outside the top five fifty, which is kind of outrageous, I, I think. Um, and then you end up losing. That's that's tough. So, well, and, and I think another thing that's interesting too is like the this just compounds the obstacles for a coach like Mike Norvell or any of these coaches that are in their early tenure. Like if you if you aren't able to get enough done in the spring because of the pandemic and then you aren't able to get enough done in the summer because of the pandemic and you have a season that has a lot of attrition or opts out or injuries and you don't have the kind of season you want, then you can't make up for that as effectively by getting guys on campus and showing them the experience and, and diving in and, and, uh, and, and just sort of the, you know, the, the selling your program beyond just what the product has looked like on the field. And so if you've got a bad product on the field and if the bad product on the field is related to some of these same pandemic circumstances, like it just compounds itself for these new coaches. So uh, I think we're seeing a little bit of success from Lane Kiffin and, and Ole Miss right now because they did kind of have a, a decent product on the field. And meanwhile, if you're Florida State, like what's the sell right now? So it, it's it's very difficult um, to navigate if you're just trying to get this thing going from sort of a, a dead standstill. So I'll stick with you on this, uh, Barton. Where does or how does this affect the coaches and the teams compared to what we had seen in previous years? So the early signing period, it seems like it's been around forever, but I think this is only year three or four. Um, and what we've seen quickly is that it's become the signing period, right? About 80% of the prospects are signed, 80% of class, especially at the major schools, the, the, you know, the high FBS school, you know, high power fives. They're locking up 80% of their class, even more than that, maybe even close to 90% in December with a few leftovers for February. Do you think we still get that type of percentage and does it affect, you know, Alabama? Is Alabama more likely to lock everybody up than maybe the next level down? Maybe a Kiffin at Mississippi at Ole Miss might think, you know what? I'm going to leave a few more open. What's the trickle down to the schools and how will that look next week when we actually see the signings happen? Yeah, I think it's important to remember that the, you know, the percentage and the large number of kids that sign in the early signing period is is really kind of driven by the schools. I mean, yes, there's a lot of kids that are ready to get this thing out of the way. And um, I mean, a, a not insignificant number. But but I think probably a lot of those guys are are just sort of being told that, look, I mean, if you're, you're either committed or you're not. And you need to sign if you're committed, you know, you need to get on board. And if you're not going to sign, then we'd love to have you in February, but we're going to consider you not committed. And like that sort of approach paints these guys into a corner. And that's why we've seen those numbers continue to tick up. I will, I don't know what we're going to see this year. I will be very interested to see if that number changes um, because of the amount of guys that are committing to a school they may have never visited before. Um, the amount of guys that might be, you know, trying to, uh, sell their senior film, not but sell figuratively speaking to a bunch of other programs uh, that that maybe are are. are you know, I, I just wonder if it'll it'll change the dynamic this year a little bit, and and I wonder if we see that number tick down. But 
I, I don't know that I necessarily expect that, but I, I think it's more apt for that. The setting is more um, is more conducive for that sort of a trend this year than it is in typical seasons. And but I'm just going to throw that same thing to you. I, you know, I, I, again, I understand you're just giving me a read on it. We'll figure out exactly what this looks like next week. But when what's your read on? Will we have the usual number of kids signing next week? Or do you think that maybe, you know, as Barton just says, you know, be interested if it might come down a little bit because of the uncertainty really on both sides? So one of the content items that we sent out to our team sites in the 24-7 Sports Network was to try to gather up, uh, hey, which of the committed kids to your class are going to sign early, which which you know, aren't sure, which know they're going to hold off. And I've been trying to read through those to get a handle on it. And this is just anecdotal. I, I don't have hard data on this, obviously. Uh, but I, I don't, at the very least, I'm confident in saying we will not see an uptick in the percentage of kids who signed early this year. I, I think it'll either be flat or, or down uh, most, most likely. Because I think there are kids who want to wait out or kids who, you know, maybe they're going to plan a trip or two on their own in the spring to go check out some of these schools. Right. And, and now the dead period is now through April. So again, there's no, nothing coming on the horizon here that's going to change things between next week's signing period and the February signing period, which of course extends for a while. I mean, we think of signing day as the first Wednesday in February, but the fact of the matter is that's a long period where kids could, where, you know, players could conceivably sign. It's just, that's not really the way it works. There's usually a couple of trickle, trickle over kid. And there's always one, you know, one, at least one high level player who caused a lot of drama by not signing for a few, for a few weeks. Actually, let me throw that one to you. Let me wrap up the recruiting part of this. Who are the players that you know will not sign next week that are going to be a big deal heading into February? And I'll, I'll start with you, bud. Are, are we counting guys who are going to announce later on, uh, but who probably will, will try to silently sign next week? Well... Okay, give me give me an example only because I know. Listen, my listeners are are probably into recruiting a fair amount, but they may not be into it as much as like the guy, the people who are the usual consumers of twenty four seven content. So explain what that means, and then give me an example of that, and then give me a guy who you know is not do is not making up his mind, who truly will be uncommitted until February. You expect to be uncommitted until February. Sure. So. uh for instance, we, we have Corey Foreman, uh, the, the number one player in, in the 24-7 sports composite, big-time defensive end at, at, out of California, considering you know, Clemson, LSU, Bama, uh, Georgia, at, at SC, like just a, a huge number of, of, of teams on his list, just basically all, all your playoff contenders, essentially, with the exception of I don't think he's involved with Ohio State at last check. Um, he's going to announce on, on January 2nd on, on NBC. So he's not going to be announcing anything next week. Now, will he sign and then announce, or will he actually wait to sign uh, in, in February after he announces on, on NBC? It, it's become more commonplace recently that a lot of these kids will go ahead and sign early, uh, and the school will just hold off on announcing it at, at the kid's request, and then they'll, they'll later you know, announce that, that, that the player has signed if he wants to have a ceremony uh, or announcement you know, post the early signing period. Okay, now give me a player who you're confident, and I'll, I'll throw either either one of you actually, frankly, um, a, a player that you're confident is not making up their mind that we will go into the February signing period with this player still 
unsigned, uncom- or unlikely uncommitted? I, I mean, I think that, you know, JT Tui Maloau, who's our number, I guess, one player for 24-7 sports, number two player in the composite. Um, I don't anticipate, but are we supposed to get a, a decision out of him? I don't think we're getting a decision out of him in the early signing period. He, he's he's planning on making his February decision. Um, and I mean, that's a big one there, obviously. Um, and this is literally a discussion in our Slack channel every day. Like, okay, which which kids are, are we sure are going to go early and which kids have not really made up their mind if they're going to go early? I Has anybody said for sure that they just will not go early? Uh, not, not a lot of guys in, in the top 10, at least. I think Tui Maloau is 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 on that list, um, and and again, like the other interesting thing too, is guys like Tui Maloau and Corey Foreman, they actually have senior seasons yet to play. That as of now, I think they're planning on playing. Like those guys aren't early enrollees, and so um, you know that that's something to to keep in mind too, and it's something that probably a lot of these these programs have to have to factor into their plans and their strategy is, all right, are we going to leave any spots available for some of these you know, senior risers out of like Virginia or California or these states that didn't play any fall season and plan on getting some sort of spring season in? Um, it's uh, it's kind of a gamble and something that teams are keeping an eye on. Yeah, and another thing I, that needs to be factored into this is we're going to have new transfer rules next year. Uh, you know, yeah. it's, it, Everybody's going to be able to do a one-time exception and be immediately eligible. Uh, I am very interested to see, you know, I've, again, I've heard anecdotally from coaches, Hey, I'll leave a few here. I'll leave a spot here. Um, I think that's already been happening because in the last couple of years, the waiver process has made it easier to get kids eligible immediately. Uh, but I am sort of interested to see how that plays out too. Uh, we'll wrap it up on the recruiting segment on that there. But what have you been hearing from coaches about how they plan to, create space on their roster for transfers while still, you know, doing the best that they can to load up on, on, on high school kids. In other words, what school, what, what type of school, maybe that's the best way to ask this. What type of school, what type type of coach is more likely to say, Hey, I'm going to leave a few open here. Sure. So I actually wrote a story on this uh, two or three months ago. And I, I thought the key takeaway that like the, the money line, the quote from, from that piece was what, why would I make a four-year mistake on a high school kid when I can go get a transfer who I know can be decent depth for me already, right? And because of the uncertainty these schools have, just like we do as evaluators and just like players do about the schools, because of the uncertainty in the process, I do think you're going to see schools sign maybe a a player or two fewer from the high school level uh, than they normally would and save a spot or two more for for transfers uh, because they they don't want to take that guy that they have those questions about. Sure, he might have some upside, but he could also – you really flop, and, and then um, you know, unless you can process them for violation of team rules or something, you're you're kind of going to eat them on your roster for four years. Um, but some schools don't don't take transfers. For instance, Clemson, you know, does does not take junior college kids. They they really don't take transfers basically ever, uh, and, and they believe it. You know, their, their culture is built from you know the high school up. Other other schools are, are very open to taking transfers. I, I think you will see a lot of these new coaching staffs. Uh, who are, just got on campus or just got on campus last December, right before the shutdown. Uh, I think you'll see them take quite a few transfers. And, you know, we're hearing some schools might even leave seven or eight spots open. 
All right, so let me take a quick break here. We'll transition from recruiting to what's going on in college football right now, uh, as opposed to sort of projecting ahead to the future, which is which is the essence of recruiting. Going to take a quick break. Break. I'm talking with Bud Elliott and Barton Simmons. They are both from Twenty Four Seven Sports. They are on the Barton and Bud podcast, and we'll be back on the AP Top Twenty Five podcast right after this. Hey, it's Michael Rosenbaum. You may remember me as Lex Luthor from the hit TV show Smallville. Regardless, I have this really cool podcast called Inside of You with Michael Rosenbaum, where I get celebrities who are a lot more famous than me to really open up. Let's get inside of Jim Jeffries. Oh, I never did anything with my life. I could have been a better son. Oh, God. I should apologize to this person. So join me on Inside of You with Michael Rosenbaum. New episodes drop every Tuesday. Listen on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your shows. And we're back with Bud Elliott and Barton Simmons from 24-7 Sports, the Barton and Bud Show. You can find that wherever you find your podcasts. Uh, these guys both do a tremendous job, not just on the recruiting side of things, but also covering college football. So let's get into sort of what's going on in college football right now. And that starts with playoff stuff and coaching stuff. Because again, we're, we're in an upside down world. So those two things are happening very much simultaneously right now. Whereas, you know, the coaching carousel is ramping up, but we actually haven't figured out who the playoff teams are. Let's start with playoff stuff. And I'll start with you, Barton. This looks like a pretty, we are also, I should mention, recording this before the playoff rankings are released on Tuesday. Partially because I have to record early in the day and partially because we all know what the playoff rankings are going to look like. That's kind of what I was going to ask you. It seems like it's a pretty boring race right now. Where, you know, what, where might there be some intrigue here? It looks like the only intrigue is what happens in the ACC championship game and the SEC championship game. Is there anything else that is, that you know, kind of catches your attention as, hey, this could be something that is interesting in the playoff race. This could be something that turns the playoff race upside down. I mean, I think one of the I, I was I was very interested in the Ohio State storyline. Um, can a let's just say six and zero Big Ten champion or even non Big Ten champion? I don't know that even matters if you know, if they ended up playing in Wisconsin in sort of the non championship game weekend because they hadn't met the threshold for total games needed to be in that game, and they had gone six and zero. Like that, that wouldn't have been necessarily a bad look for me. But the idea that just if, if, you know Ohio State only landing at six games, but doing it in a way where they only beat Indiana by seven and they, you know, let Rutgers hang around at the end of the game. And they, you know, maybe they just snuck by Michigan state. Like I I was willing to entertain that as like a really reasonable argument for poking holes in Ohio state as a playoff contender. But now that they did what they did, even on a COVID uh, affected roster to Michigan state, it feels like Ohio State is starting to get back in that. And then look, they got to. They, we'll see what happens with Michigan this weekend. But if they continue to play like that, then I just I think the committee will be compelled to put them in and just say, look, this is one of the best four teams. We don't care how many games they've played. Um, so I think that 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 it feels like that drama has started to be quelled a little bit just by Ohio State's uh, on-field performance. And I think the only other sort of drama that remains is is 
what's the margin of victory in that Clemson Notre Dame game? What does it look like? Because if if it's really close and Notre Dame wins, is 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 there any argument for a two loss Clemson getting in? If if Clemson blows Notre Dame out, is is does that mean Notre Dame's out of the mix? Um, I think those are kind of the variables that could impact this thing a little bit. I used to be on this Oklahoma kick as well, where Oklahoma <laughs> was playing so well that they need to be considered considering Ramondre Stevenson and Ronnie Perkins and all the guys that joined the fold early in the season. I'm sorry, mid season and, and how that changed the, the, the way that team was playing. But I just, I don't know if they're going to have enough with two losses, even if they went out to top the, the resumes that are being produced elsewhere. Before I throw this to you, Bud, as I like to do on this podcast, as if it, as if it is live, is to give news updates. So in the time that we're talking here, Michigan, and read into this what you will. Michigan announced that they're not going to do media availabilities today. They thought they were going to with Harbaugh and some players and now they're not and they're saying they're still going to do they're still having limited team workouts and things like that so I guess that again read into what you want but if you're thinking Michigan Ohio State might not be played and again it gets back to what Barton was talking about where the thing with Ohio State might be more a quantity than quality situation uh, where will they have enough games and will that be held against them at some point if they don't play Michigan and they can't play in the uh, in the Big Ten title game so again little bit of a news update take it for what you will as you listen to this you'll it'll, it'll probably have been played out but you know Michigan as we're talking now is not doing any media availability so that maybe puts in a little more uncertainty as to whether the game will be played this weekend so for Bud I want to throw the other interesting piece of this is what happens if the really interesting thing is what happens if Florida beats Alabama? Do you think Florida can beat Alabama? So the, the, this is an interesting topic that we, we talked about a little bit on, on the end of the last part in Bud Pod. Uh, Florida really couldn't run the ball at all against Tennessee, which was interesting. And I don't know if they're even going to try to run the ball on, on Alabama. They, they may just come out and, and chuck it 65 times and, and and see if Dan Mullen can scheme guys open often enough and hit some explosive plays and, and beat that improving tide defense. The, the issue I would have with Florida's upset bid over Alabama is uh, Mac Jones is really pretty good with pressure around him, and yet he's almost never pressured anyway. And it, it seems like Alabama just kind of um, – I'll say calls the touchdown play, but they like they're kind of playing pitch and catch at at a depth of target. You know, like they're they're playing pitch and catch with the long ball. Like they 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 throw the long ball. Like some teams throw screens and, and complete them at just such a a crazy high rate um, that I I don't know if Florida's front seven can can stand up to Alabama's offensive line. And you know, if you give Barton's favorite player in the country, Devontae Smith, that much time to get open, he's going to get open against really anybody, especially Florida. So. If they did manage to beat Alabama, I actually think it, it it sort of simplifies the playoff race a little bit, right? Alabama's still going to get in, I, I, in my opinion, pretty much regardless of what happens uh, to them against Florida. Then you would have an interesting case. Would you take a one-loss Notre Dame if they lost close over a champion Ohio State from the Big Ten? I, I kind of doubt it. So if Florida beats Alabama... I do think that the ACC title game probably becomes an elimination game. See, that's interesting because I think that makes it even more important that 
that Ohio State gets as many games. And again, it's kind of a weird thing to be saying, listen, they have to play Michigan for their playoff resume. They're 30-point favorite against Michigan. We all kind of know how that game is going to play out. So it's odd to argue why would not playing that game and Ohio State playing Iowa instead of Northwestern really affect Ohio State? I think it becomes a little bit of a semantics game um, and a, and a retrofitting your reason for picking teams, right? Because I think we all kind of feel like the, the committee does this. Like they, they, they decide who they want and then they kind of come up with, okay, how do we justify this? And in my mind, how you justify Ohio State, and I was thinking of this more along the lines of comparing them to Texas A&M, but even in a comparison to Notre Dame, how do you justify it? Well, you justify it by saying, look, they have a conference championship. And you can justify it by saying, you know, yes, they didn't play the 11 games that Notre Dame played, but they played seven and that's kind of close enough. But when, you know, even though it's only one extra game, if you go down to six and now they don't have that conference championship game, which is supposed to be used as a quote unquote kind of tiebreaker when teams are close, I think it just puts the committee into a little bit of a bind when it comes to trying, because I think the committee very much would want to put Ohio State in there, but I think how how it could justify putting Ohio State in there becomes tricky. I don't know if you agree with that, Barton, but like I'm just interested to hear what you would have to say about that. Well, I mean, the to me, like it's it's right. Like if Ohio State goes undefeated and somehow they aren't the Big Ten champion just because of the the uh, semantics of the the rules like I, that that strikes me as being totally irrelevant uh, because everyone can look around and just look at Ohio State as being what they are. And probably and, and I think everyone would agree they're still the best team in the Big Ten. I think the uh, you know, what's interesting to me is like this is a year because of all the inconsistencies in, in schedule and uh, games played and the the lack of transitive property were granted with the out non-conference games and, and all that. Uh, this is a season probably the most um, like uh, of all time. There's never been a season where sportsmanship is less important. Like throw sportsmanship out the window and beat teams as bad as you can beat them. Because if Ohio State messes around with Michigan and doesn't cover the spread this weekend, and if Ohio State wins by 17 points or something and it's kind of ugly, that's going to be used against Ohio State. So you have every motivation in the world that if you can beat someone by 45, beat them by 45. Because th- th- that's that's just sort of where we're at in this year. And, and, and I don't think there's anything wrong with that. I think that's the reality of it. you got to make a statement when you can. Yeah, I feel like I'm getting a little too hung up to a certain degree, maybe because, again, I I can't break out of the mode of what it normally would be and how that conference championship becomes a nice chip to play, again, sort of for the committee as much as more for the less for the teams, but much as for the committee to say, okay, this is the tiebreaker and we have it written down and we can show our work. The conference championship is what created the tiebreaker. I do think it'll be pretty fascinating if you have the the two major brands in college football, Ohio State, which is a television magnet, and Notre Dame, which is the University of College Football, essentially, like worldwide. And the decision comes down to which one of these two should we leave out will be uh will be pretty interesting and pretty fascinating. It's always Ohio State. Every year the 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 controversy about the playoff always lands in Ohio State's lap. Let me let me switch over to uh, coaching changes and coaching movement. 
South Carolina became the first one to hire, well, the first Power Five to hire. Southern Miss hired Wally Hall last week, which wasn't particularly surprising. It was a weird search, the Southern Miss search, because it was like, Wally Hall, he's our guy early on, is what you were hearing. And then they went three months of like kicking a bunch of cans around and ended up back at Wally Hall. Um, Southern Miss, oh, excuse me, South Carolina had a, a similar situation in that like Shane Beamer was a prominent name very quickly. And while there were all these other names that sort of bounced around, it, it always sort of seemed like it was heading towards Shane Beamer. I know Scott Satterfield kind of got himself into trouble a little bit at Louisville for, you know, messing around with South Carolina. Billy Napier bailed out. But it, it was pretty apparent that, like, if South Carolina wanted a hire when it wanted to make its hire, it was going to have to probably not get a sitting head coach. All that said... Shane Beamer is now the coach at South Carolina. And, Bud, what do you think of that? You know, I, I it could work out. I, I don't fully <laughs> get the hire. That was a super enthusiastic. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, so we, we talked about this the other day. Um, you don't have to be a coordinator or have head coaching experience to, to be successful. Ed, Ed Orgeron has never been a coordinator. Erwin Meyer was never a coordinator. Just up the road – in Clemson, South Carolina, Dabo Swinney was was never a coordinator. So you don't have to be a play caller. You, you have to be a, a good leader of people. You have to be able to run an organization. And certainly, you know, he grew up around the game. So it could work out. Uh, now, one of the justifications that South Carolina fans uh, used for why Shane Beamer would be such a good hire is that he helped build that roster. That, that South Carolina went, well, I think it was 42-11 and 11 in, in a four-year span uh, between like 20 – I think it was like 2010 to 2013-ish, I believe. Uh, and they, they even they even won the division one year. But I, I dug into this a little bit, and I think there is some concern if that's one of the main reasons why why you're hiring him. Uh, South Carolina, in that time, those, those 2008 to 2011 recruiting classes, had an incredible amount of talent in-state that it has not had since. They had 39 guys rated in the top 350 in those four years. In the last four years, they've had 14. Right. So and, and among some of that, those guys, by the way, that's like the Jadavion Clowney, uh, Stephon Gilmore, Alshon Jeffrey, Marcus I think, Lattimore. is one of those guys. Yeah, I yeah. mean, it was it was crazy. It was crazy talented. So like you had Clemson undergoing a coaching change dur- during the time Beamer was there building this roster. You had Tennessee have three head coaches in, in the four years that Beamer uh, was there. You had – Kind of the end of the Butch Davis time, uh, you had Mark Richt, who obviously was, was doing pretty well. I, I just don't know if those results are sustainable, given the factors that are outside of South Carolina's control, r- regardless of who they hired. So I want to kick this to you, Barton, though I also – first of all, if you have anything to add on that, feel free. The other thing is I want to more get your opinion on the Vanderbilt situation because you – well, do you live in Nashville or outside of Nashville? I can't remember. Uh, I know you – I'm right in the right in the heart of the city. I, I grew up down the street from Vanderbilt, so there yeah, you, there you go. So so I, so I definitely so again, if you want to add anything to South Carolina, that's fine. But I also wanted to get your take on what Vanderbilt might do, which I understand. Listen, it's hard to figure out what Vanderbilt might do might do because they have a new AD. We don't really, and this is no slight to Kansas Lee, but we don't know what the structure of that thing looks like, what a higher, what a coaching search looks like with her at the helm. And then you throw in the fact that Vandy's always a little weird. They always do things a little differently. So 
you know, who ultimately is making the decisions at Vandy is a little unclear. So anything you want to throw in on the South Carolina and Beamer is fine, but I'm also more interested in like your read on what's going on at Vandy. Yeah, I think quickly on Beamer, the, the you know, I, there is, I've said this, uh, I phrase it like this. I, I personally have no evidence that that Shane Beamer will be a successful hire at, at South Carolina, but I, I'm very open to sort of granting and conceding that I don't know. And, and, and nor does anyone that's really been around Shane Beamer within a, within a team setting. Cause I, I believe strongly that it's not about calling plays. It's not about drawing X up X's and O's. It's about building culture. And so even if I might be skeptical of the Shane Beamer hire, I, I do think it's a really strong indicator and a, and a strong, uh, I think I think it's encouraging that all the players that have played under him and and all the people that have been around him were such such ardent supporters of this hire. And so I think that's if you're a South Carolina fan, I think that's that's what you're hanging your hat on, and that's what you're encouraged by. Um, in terms of the Vanderbilt deal, um, you know they, they haven't not only do they have an athletic director, they have a new chancellor, um, and. And look, there's been some indication that the chancellor is ready to commit resources to athletics in a way that maybe haven't been uh, committed before. Who knows how, 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 you know, the reality of that, how likely that is that, you know, the, the proof is in the pudding there and uh, over the course of the next couple of years. But that is, I think, points to this being a really important hire. Um, I think the. The very obvious name is Clark Lee. He is the defense coordinator at Notre Dame. He is a was a walk on at Vanderbilt. Um, he's from Nashville, um, and he. All indications are that he is is interested in the job, and so he is a he is a defense coordinator as Derek Mason was. And there's always this inclination to go up against what you previously hired. But I think one of the things that's really interesting and unique about Clark Lee is that this is a guy, um, based on sort of being around him some and based on sort of interacting with and, and, and talking to coaches and players that, that have worked with him, I think his, he's better equipped to be a head coach than a defensive coordinator um, based on his, his skill set. So I think that's going to be an interesting one to see if they, if they go with that sort of very obvious point A to point B sort of hire. Will Healy is another one that's gotten a lot of momentum. Um, again, he's he hadn't been able to do a lot at Charlotte yet because COVID issues this year. Last year they had a really good season in his first season, but really the the crux of the Will Healy argument is actually what he did at Austin P, taking a team that had lost forty seven to forty eight games and making them basically a playoff contender in the FCS level. Um, and so I think he's going to continue to be very much, you know, uh, uh, a, a candidate here and a guy that is, is going to sort of pitch the community engagement, the excitement, the recruiting, all that kind of stuff. And then you get the, like, I think the other candidates are guys like Jimmy Chadwell at coastal Carolina, guys like Lance Leipold at Buffalo. I think there's always the, the, the curiosity of possibly going the Jeff Monken or Troy Calhoun route in terms of the option offense. Um, but, uh, I, I think from what I've been sort of gathering, I, I don't, I think this is going to be a little bit of a deliberate pace for Vanderbilt. And, uh, and, and I think they've sort of just, just started to get rolling on this. So, so that means that they might not have a coach in place. Well, I mean, gosh, signing day is a week from now. So it, it almost looks like they won't have a coach in place for signing day. 
where same, yeah, when the same period opens. Yeah, right, right. I, I don't think that they're circling in on one at this moment. Uh, you know, who knows how quickly things could change. If I were to bet, I would bet it would come after signing day, but certainly a possibility could come before. Yeah, it, it's it's interesting with the coaching searches. I think I try to get this point across to when I write and when I talk to people, to readers and listeners, that I think there is this idea. I think what what the perception of what coaching searches are and what and what they actually are are two very different things, and that you know part of getting identifying who will get the job is identifying who wants the job and that sounds obvious but that becomes more of a factor than i think people think it's almost like well we just want to get the best guy so tell us who has the best resume and we'll go get that guy and but then a guy like Shane Beamer becomes a coach at South, uh, South Carolina in which you realize that the big selling point for Shane Beamer was he really wanted that job and I think that when the the people who are in the position to make these hires like that, they don't want to necessarily have to convince Billy Napier, who is at Louisiana, here's why you should come to South Carolina. They think, of course you want to come to South Carolina. Why wouldn't you want to come to South Carolina? So a lot of it has to do with who who's actually interested in your job, who wants to make a move, and who really wants the job. And I, I think from fans' perspective, like they would think, like again, like why wouldn't Billy Napier want to be South Carolina coach? And there's a lot of reasons why Billy Napier might not want to be South Carolina coach. Actually, but I'll let you have the last word on this on South Carolina because you pretty much nailed what I thought of when it came to South Carolina, and that is my how how desirable South Carolina is is determined by who South Carolina plays every year. There's no doubt. We we, we talked about this. Like you have got to stop doing stuff like scheduling North Carolina as a neutral site game to open the year. You already play Clemson, which Unless Dabo is going to leave, which I don't think is going to happen anytime soon, you're going to lose that game far more often than you win it. You're going to be a major underdog, regardless of how well you recruit, against Florida and Georgia on a yearly basis and against A&M, which is now your cross-division rival on a yearly basis because they're recruiting extremely well over there in in, uh, in College Station. The, the formula really is go 3-1 and one in the non-conference, maybe occasionally beat Clemson, and then find a way – to go three and five or four and four in the SEC East. Now that's kind of the same formula Kentucky has, except Kentucky can execute it better. And Kentucky actually recognizes that, you know, having a winning record while playing the SEC schedule is an accomplishment. South Carolina wants more. And I just don't know that their history or recruiting base uh, and competition and who's on their schedule supports the belief that that can really happen on a consistent basis, but we'll see. Best of luck to Shane Beamer. Okay. So now we'll, we'll finish it off here with, Texas and you throw in Michigan. It's impossible to figure out what's going on at Michigan. There's been some good reporting from people I trust over the last couple of days that they're starting to talk contract with Harbaugh, though not necessarily in a way that's aggressively like, hey, Jim, we really want you to stay. Here's a big contract. It's more of, here's an idea. What do you think, Jim? And, you know, if you don't think this is good for you, you know, we we don't want to stand in your way. So that's sort of the dance that's going on at Michigan right now. Whereas at Texas, it was pretty obvious they wanted Urban Meyer. Urban Meyer doesn't want them. But now you get back to the idea of kind of what I was alluding to before. How much do you like it, it will cost about twenty five million dollars to get Tom Herman. And all you're buying with that twenty five million dollars is a spin of the wheel. 
hopefully we get a good guy next time, right? Like we have no, no guarantees here. We're just hoping that the next guy is better than Tom Herman. So I'll throw it to you, Barton. Is it worth spinning that wheel for $25 million? I don't think it is. And I actually come from this from a place of typically being very understanding of making a coaching move. These guys get paid a lot of money. It's a, it's, it, if, you know, if you're not interested in the turnover and the spin of it, then, you know, maybe stay in high school. Uh, I think it's okay for fans to have aspirations beyond whatever they may be and, and to go try to shoot for those. So like I, I, I come from a place for like understanding a lot of moves even where even when a lot of times media try to sort of paint this as like maybe that wasn't their best decision but this one because of the uncertainty of who you would get and I think it's important to like remember how much of a sure thing Tom Herman was when he was hired at Texas there's a guy that had killed it at Houston what you know uh, coached the national championship team at Ohio State was could recruit could coach offense could like all these things and he's come to Texas and hadn't been what they wanted but he's been pretty good like they actually have been improved from where they were with Charlie Strong and and I'm not going to sit here and say that Texas can't or shouldn't be better but to your point Ralph it's about how confident are you in the replacement and what you don't want to do is circle this thing back around to to you know burn it down and try to build it back up again and so I think he's done enough this season particularly uh, in the in the latter half of the year with, you know, they played better. The product has looked better. And if you're not getting and look, you have you have to make a move if Urban Meyer is willing to come. You have to. But if Urban Meyer is not willing to come, then who are you even going to get? And I think there's certainly some quality candidates out there, but none that I think you can be fully confident in are better for that job. That very unique, very like uh, rare job. That is that Texas monster where you, what you're trying to tame, and, and say they're better than Tom Herman for it. I, I would be a little bit, uh, I'd be a little bit wary uh, making that kind of a move. Yeah. So I love Matt Campbell and would fully endorse him at just about any job. But I will also say this: A, um, you, you might lose out to Michigan. B, you might lose out to the NFL. So if you're firing Tom Herman because you're pretty sure you're going to get Matt Campbell, even if like again, I am a, I, I am an unabashed you know, Homer when it comes to Campbell. I I just really think that he has a chance to be the next great college coach. But aside from my, you know, sort of somewhat somewhat biased opinion, even if you think that that's your guy too, even if you're CDC sitting in, uh, Chris Del Conte sitting in in Austin and thinking like, hey, I'm really high on Campbell too. Boy, we watched him beat our ass and I want to get that guy in here. I don't know if there's any guarantee of that. Again, that guy might end up in the NFL uh, next year. So... I want to end the conversation right there, except for one thing, bud, because there's one more field of expertise that you're really good at. And I don't want you to necessarily give it all away because I know part part of this is what you write about on the site and part of it is on your own podcast. But I know, you know, you look at some games with an eye toward uh, putting some putting some shekels down on them. Who who, do you have, have any good bets for me this weekend? Yeah, I actually, uh, yesterday I, I played UCLA. Um, I, I dug into the USC box score in, in them crushing Washington State, and they. A little weird, right? Yeah, it was a little weird. Of, yeah. Of five turnovers. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And I'm like, well, you, Chip has UCLA playing, you know, pretty solidly. Uh, that's, that, that, that's, that's not a bad team to look at this week. Uh, there, there's a couple in the Big Ten. I, 
I've just had a, a really tough year with my process really hasn't changed. I'm, I'm capturing value, you know, making my bets Sunday and Monday, getting those early lines, beating the closing number. And then this year, it really hasn't mattered but like it normally matters. Normally, you know, if, if, if you tell me, okay, you beat the closing line by X amount on this number of games, I would tell you, okay, I'm up this. And this year it's like, all right, you beat that, you beat that closing line by seven, right? You, you, you took that team plus 10, they, they finished plus three, still lost re- repeatedly. Um, but I, I think UCLA catching three and a half uh, is, is pretty solid here. All right, we're going to finish this out this way. Um, just I'll let you guys promote yourselves. Uh, give me give me where we can find your your writing and your podcasting because I know Barton, you're on like two or three podcasts I think now. Uh, so so I'll, I'll let's start with you, Bud. Like just uh you know give give the full resume and and feel free to promote yourself as much as you want. Yeah, you can follow me uh, on Twitter at Bud Elliott three. I'm on the Barton and Bud podcast, and uh, be sure to read all of our work at twenty four seven sports dot com. And Barton? Yeah, the Cover 3 podcast, Barton and Bud podcast, 24-7 sports. Um, and and the uh, CBS Sports app, you can see a lot of our stuff on video there. And and, and tune in to CBS on signing day uh, next Wednesday. We're going to have an eight-hour show on CBS Sports HQ. Um, so plenty of uh, you know running updates and minute-by-minute minute score counting of the day. So it should be a good day for us. All right, uh, guys, I really appreciate your time. Uh, definitely go find uh, their podcast. It's a good listen. Uh, don't bump me for them. Try to work <laughs> us both in. But, yeah, seriously, guys, you guys do a terrific job. Very much appreciate the time today. Keep killing it. And hopefully, I don't know, maybe we'll actually get to see each other in person at some point over the next six to eight months or so. Uh, I got my fingers crossed on that. And thanks for very much for doing it today. Thanks, Ralph. Appreciate it, man. Go to route. Take care. And now three and out. First down. If you follow me at Ralph D. Russo AP on Twitter, you might have noticed a long thread. It's kind of tiring, in fact, where I gave a status report of each conference's number of games played and how close each league will come to playing a full season. I concentrated mostly on conference games. The non-conference games this year were kind of blow-offs in most cases. The conferences that started early are looking good. Not a big surprise there. The Big 12, as I record this right now, is three games away this weekend from a perfect season, just in terms of conference games played. The SEC's chances of a perfect season seem to have gone out the window with the postponement of Ole Miss at Texas A&M. The Aggies and Rebels both have games on December 19th already, so the only way it gets made up is if another game can't be played. Still, the SEC is going to come very close to having all of its teams play 10 conference games. The ACC will fall a few games short. But in part, that's because it chose to eliminate Clemson and Notre Dame's final games. Uh, The Sun Belt is super close to getting all of its games in, all of its conference games in, with three to play between this weekend and next. The American is going to fall about four games short, actually more than that now, right before we recorded this podcast, Cincinnati and Tulsa, a regular season game, was postponed were canceled for this weekend. Those same two teams will play in the conference championship game, most likely at Cincinnati 
on December 19th. So it looks like the AAC, depending on what they might do in championship weekend, will be about four or five games short of a full conference slate. As for Conference USA, which also started early, uh, no league got hit harder by COVID. CUSA will fall way short of a full schedule with not one team currently expected to reach eight league games. For the conferences that started late, they'll get the vast majority of games in, but not leaving any time to make up conference games to make up postponements just did not work out. I understand why the Big Ten and Pac-12 started late to get daily testing available for their athletes, but it's hard to make the argument that it turned out to be the game changer it was sold as. The thinking was that it could curb outbreaks because it would allow schools to remove infected individuals from team settings quickly. I don't know. Anecdotally, that doesn't look to be the case. Maybe someone who has a chance to study some of the data when this is all over can show otherwise. Let's just say this. When it comes to completing a season with something that can be sold as having competitive integrity, the conferences that jumped in in September absolutely made the right move. Now, if the goal was to keep the athletes from getting infected, like all the doctors said, I'm not sure if any conference was particularly successful. And plenty of schools slogged through this season. The players got to play, so that's good. That was one of the goals. But defining success solely by percentage of games played seems short-sighted. But since a successful season was never really defined, I guess making sure lots of TV dollars were salvaged can be considered a success. Second down, the Big Ten and Pac-12 were facing tricky scenarios regarding how the conferences will crown a champion this season. The Big Ten situation might work itself out because Ohio State seems to be on target to play this weekend against Michigan. Do that, and it meets the minimum game's requirement of six to be eligible for the Big Ten title game, and then the Buckeyes can go play for the Big Ten title. If Ohio State had not reached the minimum, the Big Ten at least seemed open-minded to changing rules to accommodate Ohio State. The Pac-12 has its own issue. USC and Colorado was canceled a couple of weeks back, but now USC and CU are the only remaining unbeaten teams in the conference. If both win Saturday, the team with the highest CFP ranking will be the South Division champ, likely USC. Doesn't seem fair to the Buffaloes, and some have suggested the Pac-12 abruptly scrap its divisions and allow USC and CU to play in the conference title game if both finish unbeaten. Everybody in the North Division has at least one loss, and if Oregon beats Washington this weekend, they'll all have at least two losses. So here's why it made sense for the Big Ten to accommodate the Buckeyes and less sense for the Pac-12 to do so with CU. In the Big Ten scenario, allowing Ohio State to make the conference title game as the only unbeaten team in the league, A, protected the conference's chances to put a team in the playoff, and B, didn't really screw over any team in the conference. Indiana would have been the alternative to Ohio State, and maybe still will, but the Hoosiers lost to the Buckeyes. You wouldn't be taking something away from Indiana that it could make a claim it rightfully earned on the field. Indiana would have been awarded the Big Ten East basically for a perfect attendance record. 
In the Pac-12, yes, CU is unbeaten, but the Buffs haven't played Oregon or Washington or any North Division teams. And the North is considered the tougher of the two divisions. To change that rule, the ADs would have had to take something away from Oregon and Washington. I don't think they're willing to do that, and nor do I think it would have been necessarily fair to do that. Third down. I alluded to this in the discussion with Barton and Bud, but wanted to slam this point home. The amount of uncertainty that comes with a coaching change has never been higher. Because coaches get cycled through the system so quickly, you have more guys getting hired for top jobs with no experience and track record. And because nobody has any patience, these inexperienced and unproven coaches are not given any time to actually grow into those jobs. I often use the term spin the wheel and how much are you willing to pay to spin that wheel. Every new hire is selling hope and schools now use coaching changes specifically to gin up enthusiasm in a program where that has waned because the current coach wasn't winning enough. But the cost of spinning the wheel isn't just millions of dollars. There is also attrition and the resetting process. The simple act of making a coaching change is often one step back to take two steps forward. The one step back, though, is more often more of a sure thing than the two steps forward. That's the show for today. I'd like to thank my producer, Sarah McCrory, for making me sound good. You can find this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Westwood One Podcast. Please subscribe so you don't miss an episode. I'm Ralph Russo, the college football writer with the Associated Press. Thanks for listening and come back for more next week of the AP Top 25 College Football Podcast.